0: was really to explore technology, to build your own structures, and to develop formats and infrastructures that would work outside the traditional art world. It was this very strong idea of creating self-organized structures, infrastructures, to make us independent from the traditional art world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. When I started to surf the web back in the days of the mid-1990s, I used the internet for playing games and talking to strangers in chat rooms. I had no idea that the internet could also be used to create art. Did you? Cornelia Solfrank certainly did. An artist and researcher, Cornelia is widely considered as a pioneer of internet art. She lived in New York City in the mid-90s and together with a small group of hackers and artists explored the possibilities of how this emerging technology can be used to create art and infrastructures that were different from the traditional art world.
0: It was a pioneer work and a lot of people built up things and structures and developed ideas that are still very relevant today.
1: That makes me curious. What can we learn from the pioneers of internet art about the state of technology today. Dr. Cornelia Solfrank, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Severin.
1: My pleasure. I believe when we talk about The future of culture and technology, it's about how technology is changing culture in our lives. And obviously, the last year changed our lives profoundly. So have you been baking sourdough bread? Did you take up gardening? How was last year for you? Good
0: question. Because, in fact, uh, I normally live in Berlin. As you know, we are almost neighbors in Berlin but I try to get out of the city for obvious reasons because being in the city, you know, urban life is about going out, meeting people, you know, going to cultural events. All of that was not possible last year. So why would you be in the city? So uh, we are lucky because we have this little house uh, in the countryside. And I came here in mid-March last year Thought okay for some months I, I I'll manage <laughs> to live in the countryside. <laughs> it's been now um, fourteen months that I'm here. Most of the time I was just two quick trips in Berlin. That's it. Congrats! And it was crazy to see how much traveling I did for work. Not traveling at all and seeing, you know, in one month you go to four, five, six, seven different locations for work. <laughs> I didn't do any of that. This has its advantages as well. I realize that I'm much more focused on things. There's much more continuity on you know in working if you're not constantly interrupted by travelling. On the other hand, I mean there is a there's a very huge garden here which always tries to invite me to weed and plant things but I'm afraid that's not me.
1: (laughs) I can't get excited about gardening at all. That's interesting because I feel like you know there's this concept of digital gardening that has become very um, modern as well in the last year I think where people talk about the digital and technologies as something we have to maintain care about and grow and put love and tenderness in there which i think is also a topic of your work um but obviously in the real world uh, gardening is not really an interest of yours
0: you have to make up your mind what you want to take care of you know and i decided at one point consciously do i want to engage with the garden or not and then i said no i'd rather take care of my own server. So I started to build my own server and there's a lot of work (laughs) related to that. It's very complex and I'm much more happy with that at the moment.
1: What I'd like to talk about today is actually the history and the present about what it means to work on the internet and also what it means to be an artist on the internet, which is obviously something you have been part of since the very early days. So if we go back to the mid-90s, I think in the mid-90s, you were in New York, and that's when net art, this very fresh new thing, just started becoming interesting. How, how did you get involved with it back then, and what was the scene like?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was no coincidence that I was in New York. That I applied for a fellowship to actually investigate internet art in New York. Which caused some discussion, you know, with the funders because it, uh, we thought it's internet art. Why do you have to go somewhere to explore it? <laughs> it's online. That mm-hmm. yeah, because there is the scene where where things happen. and I need to be on site and talk to the people, and I want to do interviews and all of that. And it was in fact a lot focusing on New York at the time. You know, several projects which are still very relevant today. One of the biggest actually is Rhizome, the art base which are also was started by Mark Tribe back then. Uh, there was a gallery that was dedicated to um, make exhibitions around this new digital computer-based formats, which was er- very experimental. They didn't make any money out of that. They they were selling traditional art and put their money into into the digital art. And, there was uh, moo theaters, you know, and uh, all kinds of projects. And it's really interesting to, to think back to that because it, it was a pioneer work and a lot of people built up things and structures and developed ideas that are still very relevant today. And because it was not a very big scene, you know, it was maybe a dozen people or if it's a lot, it was two dozen people were engaged in that and and it was amazing and i'm still in touch with with many of them and we still have this feeling of being connected through this spirit of the early days when we
1: had such such great ideas about the emancipatory potential of technology and why why was it so small the scene were there people who were critical about net art as such? Were the artists who said, technology is not for me, you know, it's about painting or it's about non-technological uses? Why was the scene so small in the in the mid-90s?
0: I think it was really because it it was emerging, you know. It was in, in mid-90s, the World Wide Web only was basically made accessible to a larger audience. And in the beginning, there were six websites. I don't know how many websites <laughs> exist today, you know, but it was this running gag you know you have six websites you all know them by heart basically and i think it was just not for everyone of interest and also for me it's very different today digital art especially with this whole hype around nfts and you know digital graphics and and virtual reality This was not what people were interested back then. It was really to explore technology, to build your own structures and to develop formats and infrastructures that would work outside the traditional art world. It was this very strong idea of creating uh, self-organized structures, infrastructures to make us independent from the traditional art
1: world. So technology was a means to an end, to break out of an existing system with its rules and boundaries. But then you also mentioned that technology is never neutral. And I think also a lot about your own work that, for example, with Net Art Generator and Female Extension was to question some of the cultures, ideologies that are implanted in certain uses of technology. How aware were you and the artists back then of technology as a tool that's never neutral?
0: Uh, I would say not much at all that was really not the discussion. Uh there was this excitement, you know, about machines and code and also and we associated with that uh hacker culture and hacker culture MIT, you know, all the labs where these guys were developing great stuff, protocols and whatever. Um so it was more that we wanted to participate in this hacker culture and become part of that uh, that was much more prominent uh, or predominant also because what we know today you know the predominant of the of the big corporations that kind of have technological development under control that was not visible at all, and of course, you know, there was Windows. We didn't like Windows. It was Bill Gates. It was proprietary. We didn't like it. So, you know, people more moved to to Apple and Macintosh because that was still cool back then. <laughs> I think this this idea to be critical of technology was was really not 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 in the air in the beginning because a technological development Meant had come out of a, of a critical underground culture, basically, most of it. So that was what we were interested in.
1: You were also part of a sort of community back then that was called The Thing, right? Mm-hmm. The Thing New York, which was, I think, an arts community, but also an internet service provider and a bulletin port. And I would say it was it was one of the first, it was a community you were part of. So can you tell us a little bit about what it meant to be part of that community back then? How you self-organized, how your relationships formed and and what it became today? Yeah, the
0: thing is really an interesting project because it was started in 1991, you know, which is exactly 30 years ago, if you imagine. And it started as a bulletin board system, so it was no fancy, you know, uh, graphic user design or anything. Um, the idea was simple. It was that artists want to initiate their own speaking and writing about art. You know, there was like a, a gesture of empowerment to not only make the art and let others talk about it, but to create a discursive space ourselves where we would discuss art. Um, the interesting thing was it was founded um, in... New York by a German artist. And because there was already this transatlantic connection, you know, of Wolfgang Steele, who had a big network also in Germany, the thing was that uh, it was, on the one hand, it was a local thing in New York. They also had an office space and all kind of facilities. But um, there was, from the beginning on, a very strong connection to different locations in europe i think the first one was in cologne there was one in hamburg and if you look up there is a long entry in on wikipedia about the thing and if you look it up you can see that over the time uh, 13 uh, thing platforms have been created in different countries and cities outside of new york and this understood itself as operating in the spirit of the thing New York but creating an independent platform what was interesting about that that that, that, that the founder Wolfgang Stele he was he was very open and generous you know, he said to everyone you know you can use the concept but you can do an implementation as you like or as it makes sense in your own environment. And that was very inspiring for people because you could do something that was very specific to your location. At the same time, you always were part of the big network.
1: Then to your own personal work, the net art generator that followed out of that. How inspired? I mean, before you talk about it, um and I, I believe you have talked about it for very many times because i think this is the one main work that has become so influential and also been part of your biography so how did one lead to another you coming to new york connecting with the few dozen internet artists um, being part of the thing new york and then creating female extension net art generator how did that happen
0: it was interesting because my time in New York, I, I, I used to explore all these projects and try to get an understanding what is it about. I did not have my own approach or my own work back then. So it was really an exploration, it was research. When I came back from New York, the first thing that I heard was that the Kunsthalle Hamburg was going to do uh, the first museum competition for Internet art. And I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly what we that no one needs and no one wants, and um, uh, and it is a complete misunderstanding because internet art was really about uh, you know creating independent spaces and not being uh, judged uh, by the traditional art world,
1: which I find is so interesting because today it would be different, right? If the Kunsthalle Hamburg would make such a competition today, there would not you wouldn't be that critical about it because it's it has become such a norm that large institutions, all are part of, you know, this bigger thing.
0: Yes, it's changed. It definitely changed. And I have been collaborating with big institutions also, but I prefer small institutions, I have to say, to collaborate. (laughs) Um, It has to do with the basic paradigms of digital art. And I think they still do not go very well with the needs of the art world. I mean, it has been a constant struggle, you know, how to make a digital artwork unique or an original that can be sold and all of that. So uh, coming back to this competition in Hamburg, uh, it made me very angry and I thought they don't get a thing and they, I don't want to be judged by them and they shouldn't, they should not be like the best net artist, you know? It's totally against the spirit of community, of collaboration, of building independent spaces. So I made a plan to certainly disrupt the competition, um, if not totally destroy it. I mean, I was not sure how how, how far I would get with my plan. But uh, I thought one interesting uh, hacker strategy is to flood, uh, for example, a server with so many requests that it breaks down, so it's kind of flooding. Um, So I thought, okay, I I don't criticize what's going on, I just flood the competition with so many net artists that they will not be able to handle it. So I created three hundred fictitious net artists and flooded the competition. It was all automated, so it didn't break down. But then I had to create three hundred fictitious net art projects, and for that, uh, I did. uh, I used an old cultural technique from the twentieth century, which is collage. So I made a code collage. I made a, a collage of random, randomly pasted HTML code to create new websites, and they just sent all these websites to the museum, you know, for the jury to be judged. And still everything worked, and nothing happened until the the final uh, press release was sent out by the museum, and they had three, and I have to say, the 300 artists I created were all female, and the three prizes that were given away were given to male artists. And in the meantime, the museum already had published a press release saying it's a huge success and more than two thirds of the artists that submitted work were female. And <laughs> they had forgotten about that in the process. In the end, it was three male artists. And so I didn't actually manage to to technically, you know, crash or break the competition. So the only chance left, I had to go to the press conference and hand out my press release where I said okay guys this is what I did you know I submitted the 300 fake artists and websites and and I think uh, that is an adequate response to call for net art because this is what the internet is about to create fake identities to multiply to have no original artists and artworks and so on and so forth the museum did not find that funny at all Um, they don't find it funny today. I mean, there were in the in the years after there have been art historians researching net art. They got in touch with the museum and they tried to get information on. And there's nothing in the files. You know, it's it's been deleted from the history of the museum. <laughs> um, but uh, the, I'm I'm telling this story also because it, it is it, it leads to the net art generator because copying and pasting randomly HTML code. Created very interesting websites, and after the competition, um, I decided that I wanted to follow this path because I thought it's quite interesting it, you know like the collage did the collage was a first step in in modernism you know to question you know to go away from the idea of the white canvas and and, and the original artist that creates does an original creation. Collage was already based on existing material that was recombined. And this is what I exactly did in um, with the Natar Generator. I developed a script that uh, randomly combined existing material on the internet to make it into new works. And for me, that has a lot to do with... Um, with this uh, attempt or with these ideas of creating independent spaces and empowering artists because for me that was also a criticism of the idea of the the genius artist creator and and the idea of the original work so that that is the the context
1: i thought it was so interesting as well because what you created back then in 1997 still is so relevant today when it comes when you you know these collage websites that are essentially fake you know fake news is a big challenge on today right with all these websites basically um, transmitting knowledge that's essentially not true as well as fake profiles where you know mm. lots of social media profiles out there are actually fake they are bots created by other people who Probably with the same intention as you had. They, they want to manipulate, they want to steer to certain, or they want to criticize, or they want to make money, or you know, there's tons of intention behind that. So when you think about your work back in 1997, and then compare to today's world, what do you think how, how did the Internet and also being an artist questioning and hacking certain um, ideologies? How did that change and evolve over the last 30 years, or 25 years?
0: Well, the first uh, thought I have is that we were incredibly naive back then. We really thought we can use technology to undermine structures that we are critical of, like the art world, you know. So it was a bit an innocent uh, take on technology. And of course, it took uh, a while there was a lot of things going on, uh, like net critique and, you know, mailing list on critical discourse and technology, all of that. Uh, and then all of a sudden social media appeared and it was obvious social media is bad. We don't engage, you know, it's corporate. Someone privately owns what we are doing there and they are harvesting our data and we don't want to be, be part of this exploitation system. People started to develop alternatives, which did not really take off uh, for certain reasons. And social media proliferated, became more, bigger. And I think recently I read that more than half of the world population engages daily with social media. So it's kind of incredibly powerful. And if you imagine that this is all privately owned structures where no one, except the owners, have control over the terms of use and conditions and how they use data, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, you know? It's like a development which is, um, was totally unexpected. And because we were so busy in our little world trying to create alternatives and to whatever, uh, I think we were a bit ignorant also towards these uh, developments for too long, at least I was. And um, it took me quite a while actually to understand the power, the real power, of uh, social media, and then I also gave up this na- naive idea: if I don't have a Facebook account, you know, I'm 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 a good person and I'm safe and I don't contribute to it because it doesn't matter if you have a Facebook account or not. You know, the power, the influence of these platforms to manipulate on large scale people and political processes. Is there, no matter if I have an account or not. So this was the moment when I started to engage with social media, uh, and also because I got interested really in what what attracts people to to be there and spend so much time there. And I have to say um, that I start to understand it from from the perspective of a personal user. I think it's a I mean the technology behind these platforms is is great. And it's interesting what you can do, you know, that I can find people I have not met for a long time. I can keep in touch with people I know, but I'm not close friends. I can still follow what they're doing. I can announce my own work. Um, I mean, the only strict rule that I have is that I don't publish any private stuff, you know, neither my food nor pictures of my family or whatever. A very useful information uh infrastructure, which I also use and also criticise at the same time, but it's not easy to find a good like an entry point for a reasonable criticism, I think, because you can say we should expropriate Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, but if you expropriate him who 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 should to whom should it be given you know this global infrastructure I don't know, <laughs> big question.
1: So is your relationship to social media maybe a little bit like a relationship to capitalism? Like you might not like it or criticize it, but you can't really not live in a capitalist society, at least where we live.
0: It's more specific, I think, because you, you have different social media platforms who function different differently, do different things. But the criticism on social media is based on an anti-capitalist uh, criticism which means, you know, it's based on exploiting not just people but and their work, but also uh, the world, the earth, you know, the environment. So at the moment, I'm still, I have the feeling I'm still researching, I'm trying out things, I'm exploring dynamics, because the the dynamics of social media is so complex, meanwhile, you know, that's the first thing you have to understand, how does this How does these different platforms actually work? You know, what is their power? Where lies their power in order to get a better understanding of where there might be a point for intervention?
1: One point of intervention that I think you started in 2019 is Purple Noise, right? Which is a collective that tries to critically work with social media. Can you tell us a little bit about what Purple Noise is and how it came up?
0: Yeah, Purple Noise is is basically was the response to... To that uh, shock, you know, uh, that I had regarding so the power of social media, and it was not only social media. It's also the revelations of Edward Snowden. I think we kind of knew it somehow before, but then it was, you know, it was obvious what was going on: that we are spied on, that our data are being collected without our consent, that governments are completely involved, you know, with secret services or or they are co- completely helpless in the face of these global corporations who just do whatever they want, you know, they give a shit about national legislation. So this realization was asking for, to be further explored and I think that was the, the moment when we decided um, we want to work collaboratively. I would not call Purple Nose a collective because a collective consists of specific people you know who kind of agree that they work together we understand ourselves as an open uh, research group and a network and we particularly call for participants when we when we when we uh, conceive of specific activities and actions and the idea really is um to get a deeper understanding of the dynamics of social media. And so we create interventions and we try uh, a little bit as far as possible to do a sort of reverse engineering and see, you know, when we understand memes are important or, you know, certain uh, hashtags have a certain Power they can unfold and so we try to work all with this with these elements you know that that create or that are important in the dynamics of social media.
1: you mentioned this one intervention that you did where I think there was a large scale demonstration, and you created posters with certain um slogans on it and gave it to random people and took pictures of them and then put it on your Instagram or on Twitter and pretended that these were actually activists of purple noise, even though they were random strangers who didn't know what they were protesting for.
0: Yeah, that was our first uh, research, I would say, was the exploration, or was based on the question how online and offline protests are, are, are related. Now everyone posts photos and videos of protests on social media. Other people see it and say, oh, there are so many people in the in the streets in my city. I should also go. So this dynamics, uh, uh, also classical media would report differently from what you can get through social media. So this dynamics, how this is connected. And so there was this big demonstration at um City of Women's Festival that we basically hijacked by... Um, it's not. We, we also didn't give uh, our posters and our banners to everyone, but always to selected group of peoples. But then we had photographers and a filmmaker who took uh, photos. And in the end, we could create an online presence that made it look like that this whole demonstration was basically about purple noise and our um, and our slogans. It was not even slogans. We had this. We have very strong visual language. Uh, which plays with gender symbols and hashtags.
1: It reminded me what happened last year, I think in June, when worldwide there were Black Lives Matter demonstrations. There were some of these videos that popped up where you could see models and other influencers basically just appearing for a minute with their own personal photographer holding up the sign Black Lives Matter and then disappearing again, which is a little bit what you've done.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's so incredibly interesting also what influencers do. There's a whole new generation of political activists who are also influencers and have no problem with product placement in their political videos. So we are also looking into this. We have this reputation of being uh, like a, a political or somehow authentic you know research group we don't do that for money or anything we have more idealistic uh, goals if all of a sudden in our next intervention we would all wear i don't know Gucci handbags or something you know i think it would be quite fun to see what what does it to our political goals or is this a normal thing to happen today or I think this is a very interesting thing uh, that there is a sort of a normalization in the next generation that they combine uh, also in Black Lives Matter, you know, black uh, activism with commercial commercial advertisements and think, well, what is going on? I don't get it, you know? It's very confusing, but that's interesting. That is so interesting because it confronts me all the time I feel it makes me feel so very old because I think, oh, my God, I still had this idealistic ideas, how what you do and what you don't do. And because they unfold a lot of power with what they do at the same time, they use their power to do advertisement for the system that they actually criticize. So this is the sort of contradictions that uh, I find very interesting as an artist. And I think it's a good material to work with.
1: I I would like to go back to, you know, the conversation about technology as as something that's not neutral and something when you talked about social media, you were like, it's too easy to say I'm not just using it because I'm against it, you know, against technologies privately owned and so on. So you're using social media now in order to understand and to still explore. And at the same time, I feel like we're now getting beyond the stage. You know, I, I personally perceived that about four or five years ago technology criticism really happened on a large scale. You also mentioned it, you know, the the revelations by Edward Snowden on government surveillance or um, Cambridge Analytica on social media. These were cultural moments where suddenly a very large audience realized that these technologies do things that we are probably not aware of and that we have very little control over. But at the same time, I think it's too easy to really say, this and that technology is bad. Like technology always... Embeds certain values um, that that we can also decide as individuals, maybe or as communities, um, as societies. And I think you know, in the in the book that you published in in early 2021, Aesthetics of the Commons, there was this one phrase that really stuck with me. That was you were asking for a call for new social and technological imaginaries, which I I interpret as something that if we can start imagining a different future or a different way of using technology. We can actually get there. But maybe what we lack is the imagination because our imagination is so much defined by what we use nowadays. Can you elaborate a little bit on on your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Because if if I talk to people about, you know, everyone is immediately has a lot of criticism about everything. But if you ask people, so what is your wish? You know, if you could make a wish for the future, what would it be? I don't know. <laughs> so people stopped actually thinking about what they really want, what they desire. And it's easy. I think it's easy to criticize the system as it's going now. And it's more and more people doing that, uh, a system that is only oriented towards profit. I think that's the problem. You know, it's not that it's not the technology itself. I was never against technology. I think technology is still great, and we will need it for whatever future. But if the only uh, value that is related to technology is profit making, you know, exploitation of people, their data, and their work, and uh, exploiting the earth, no matter what it costs and no matter what the consequences are that is a problem but the the question then that arises also is who has control over technology that's an interesting question how much control do we have can we probably get more control and how would that happen i mean so far the system is that you get a lot of things for free or you know allegedly for free you pay i mean you are the product in that case as we know <laughs> if you get anything for free so you don't need to think about it. You just use it. You give away everything you you create and you generate, and and that is the system. And I think we need to find uh, ways where we can kind of get into this logic and make people understand that logic. And the control over technology is something. It's a it's a really big problem because, as I said before, global tech companies are basically out of control. When Trump was banned from Twitter, um, you know, after the storm on the Capitol, everyone was applauding. But then I thought, this is awful that this corporation can decide who they want to have on their platform, who they don't want to decide. You know, this is impossible. There is no way to regulate this. And it needs regulation. And uh, and all the discussions we had recently, we we were kind of coming back to, yes, we need more state control, which doesn't make me very um, optimistic because most of politicians have no clue of what's going on. Learning how things work and like making an own server is not because I absolutely... think that is necessary. I mean, you could easily buy service base anywhere and just trust the company that they do it right. <laughs> you know, most of them do it right. But it's also to understand what digital infrastructure is. It's not just the software and the hardware. We rely on the, on the connections, on the lines, on the infrastructure and on the servers. You know, all, all the cloud services, you know, is nothing but servers that belong to someone else. And the moment, if you start to have your own server and understand how complex it is, how difficult it is, how vulnerable it is, um, you get an understanding of the complexities that are behind. And I think that is, it's not, uh, uh, that is the idea that we have to do. And it's also, I don't see a revolution that goes like this, you know. Expropriation is no problem. So who would be the new owners? But I think it's a very, long process of learning and I think the most important message even the symbolic disruptions that we are doing as artists are important but as you said in the beginning I also stand my understand myself and my work as an as an educator and I think it's incredibly important that people come together and that they share their experiences with knowledge and that they learn things together and they unlearn other things and um they become more emancipated towards technology. I think that's the only thing I can I can see as a as a path into the future. And um, the imaginaries are of course that we can still use technologies for a lot of good things. but uh, I think the uh, the basic orientation towards exploitation and profit making has to, change. This is not sustainable.
1: Wow, what a great conversation. And I really think Cornelia is right. The same dynamics and power structures that were already in place in technology in the mid-1990s are still there today. They're just much bigger and maybe a little less obvious, but it's still important to question them, challenge them, and eventually hijack the system just as Cornelia did. If you are curious to dive deeper into techno-feminism, internet art, and further research by Dr. Cornelia Solfrank, check out the show notes in your podcast app. There's more links for you to check out there. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further. Over and out, until next time.